Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics from the American Civil War to the Korean War. During World War II, about 16 million people from all walks of life served in the U.S. military. This number included many of the top celebrities of the day, so much so that historians often refer to the period as a time when Hollywood went to war. Stars like Clark Gable and Jimmy Stewart famously joined the military, as did many others in the entertainment industry. Some fought on the front lines, while others were placed in positions to use their industry talents to help the U.S. military with training, propaganda, morale, and public relations. The great big band leader, Glenn Miller, was part of this latter group. To discuss Miller's military service and the latest research on his disappearance, we are joined today by Dennis M. Sprague, author of Glenn Miller Declassified and the senior consultant for the Glenn Miller Archives at the University of Colorado Boulder. Welcome, sir. Thank you for asking me. Can you start us off with an overview of Glenn Miller's career prior to World War II? Sure. Real simple. Glenn was born in 1904 in Clarinda, Iowa, which is just outside of Omaha, Nebraska. His family ended up moving several times out to Nebraska and then eventually settled in Fort Morgan, Colorado, where he went to high school and he was an all-state end in football. He attended the University of Colorado in Boulder for two years before becoming a professional musician. He was already involved informally in music prior to that. And so what happened was throughout the 1920s and into the 1930s, Glenn really came up the ladder from territory bands to a famous band led by Ben Pollock in Los Angeles, which eventually became America's number one band in the 1920s. And that band ended up in New York. And at one point in 1928, Glenn decided to stay in New York and become a studio musician and work freelance for other bands. And on Broadway, he wrote music scores for George Gershwin for the show Girl Crazy. Along the way, he married his college soulmate, Helen Berger, who was from Boulder. She moved out to New York and and they got married and they lived, lived after that together. He started bands for people like Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey, who he'd met in the studios and working for other jazz bands. He played for Red Nichols. Miller became a very important instrumentalist and arranger, and he was highly sought after. When Ray Noble, the English band leader, came to the United States to form a band, he hired Glenn to be the director of the band for him and bring in the personnel, and he did develop an all-star unit. And so that led to the point in time in 1937 when Miller started his own band. The first year was very rough, and he suspended operations for three months to regroup. He did so in 1938, and from then on, he was on the upswing. By the middle of 1939, end of 39, he became America's number one big band. I don't know if people understand today what this meant. Bands were the superstars of the era. Um, Vocalist people who sang worked for the band leaders. And so the band leaders like Glenn Miller had 16 to 20 musicians and several vocalists working for them. By 1940, Miller was, you know, Miller's record sales and popularity were booming. He had a network radio show three nights a week on CBS for Chesterfield cigarettes. The cigarette companies, oddly enough, were the big sponsors of radio programs in that era. 
And in any event, he made two movies, um, Sun Valley Serenade and Orchestra Wives in 1941 and 42, 20th Century Fox. So by the time you get to the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, Miller is the most successful, most well-known, most popular, best record seller. Number one record at the time of Pearl Harbor was Chattanooga Choo Choo, which was a Glenoy record. So he was on top. He was the guy. Miller has a very, very strong response to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Can you tell us about this? Before Pearl Harbor, Glenn was already devoting a lot of his radio broadcasts to the servicemen because the draft had been reinstated in 1940-41 timeframe. So a lot of young people with whom Glenn was popular were getting drafted into the military already. And he was concerned about them and he, and he wanted to devote a lot of his programming to them. In fact, he had a program on NBC called Sunset Serenade on Saturday afternoons that was devoted to only to the service personnel. So by the time of Pearl Harbor, he was already concerned about world affairs. and He was a pretty smart guy and knew what was about to happen. And when it did, he sat down and gave it some thought about what he wanted to do, if there was more he could do toward the war, what would now be the war effort in full with the United States in the war. Um, Glenn was spent some time with a man named Dave Dexter Jr., who was the editor of Downbeat Magazine. The night after Pearl Harbor on December 8th of 41, and Dexter wrote later that he knew at that point in time that Miller was going to do something like maybe go in the military because he, he was all they wanted to do was talk about what had happened. So by the time you get into the spring of 42, Glenn is doing whatever he can to try to do more than just what he said, just sit on the sidelines and be an entertainer. And, you know, a lot has been given to me in this country. I want to give something back. So he started exploring ways of how he could do more. And, he, and he, he went to Washington. He met with the army. He explored the Navy. But then his uh, he had a friend, another musician named Eddie Peabody, who was in Chicago already in the Navy. And when he was in Chicago, Peabody suggested that Glenn apply for commission in the Navy first. Like a lot of the Hollywood directors and actors who joined the service, Miller, I think, as you've already alluded to, was not somebody who was going to be drafted to serve in this war. There was really no pressure. There's no expectation for him to serve in uniform. Is it true that he walks away from a civilian income of millions of dollars to serve his country? And millions of dollars in 2021 money. In 2021 value, yeah. He, actually, in 1942 value, his income in 1942 was just about at a million dollars. It was like a million one. So yeah, take a million one in 1942 value and you can project ahead what that meant, how much, you know, what he was walking away from if he were to join the military. Oh, yes, definitely. Now, you mentioned him exploring the Navy and the Army. The press initially reports that he is joining the Navy and then yes, he joins the Army. So right. tell us about all of this. Well, it was very interesting. It didn't have a whole lot to do with Glenn. It had more to do with what was going on with the Navy. Like I said, Eddie Peabody suggested he apply for a Naval Commission. The problem was at the time Glenn went in, there was a lot of controversy in Congress and even all the way up to the White House. Eleanor Roosevelt, the president's wife, was getting concerned that people in the entertainment industry, particularly people in Hollywood and the film industry, were being given um, commissions in the military, particularly the Navy, without any real reason to give them the commission. It was almost like they were trying to avoid the draft by getting these, these cush jobs where they could sit at a desk. And, and some of them were of draft age. They were younger. Miller, by the way, I should point out, was draft was 3A, which meant he was married. 
he was over the 35 year old draft age, but you know, he was still eligible if they went up above 35, he could get grabbed, but he was, he had a, he had an exemption for being married 3A. That didn't matter to him. He wanted to do something and go in. The Navy rejected him. And the reason the Navy rejected his, his application for commission was because there was a congressional inquiry and turned out a naval recruiting officer in Los Angeles was actually um, thrown out of the Navy because they found that they had been giving a lot of favors to different people in Hollywood. Several actors and some screenwriters were accused of bribing the Navy to, to avoid the draft. So anyway, Glenn got caught up in all of that, not for his own doing. But here is the thing that was interesting. The Navy at the time really didn't have a place for him. They they could have taken him in like they did with Artie Shaw, the other band leader who, who went in at the same time. Artie went into the Navy as a chief petty officer or an enlisted grade to lead a Navy band. So Glenn could have done that, but he wanted to be an officer. The Army had work that Glenn could do and was suited for not only in music, but broadcasting. The Army, unlike the Navy, the Army already had a lot of radio programs on the air aimed at the not only the domestic audience, but the service personnel overseas. So when Glenn was rejected by the Navy, he immediately applied to the Army. And it only took about a week or two before the Army said, we want you. And he, he enlisted and he went in. In um, September of 1942, he he dropped everything. His network radio show, um, he recommended his competitor, Harry James, to take over that show. He walked away from a movie contract of three more movies and a lot of other engagements and everything. His record contract was suspended till the end of the war. Now, bear in mind, everybody expected him to come back. It wasn't like, you know, he wasn't going to come back. And also he was going to do related work in the military. I would digress here at one point and say you have to remember what was going on at the time and why this was not just a patriotic decision, but a pragmatic decision. The record companies were faced with a musician strike as of August 1st, 1942. None of the big bands could make records anymore, at least for two or three years, because Mr. Petrillo, head of the American Federation of Musicians, struck the record companies for better pay for the musicians. So Glenn Miller couldn't make any records starting. No, nobody could starting August 1st. A lot of the musicians were 18, 19, 20, 22, 24 years old. So they were getting drafted. Band leaders were losing personnel to the draft, which, by the way, would make for a lot of all-star personnel that Glenn Miller could collect and hire, not hire, but bring together in the military. So he thought about that and travel restrictions. It would be expensive for a band to travel in wartime when there were travel restrictions. So there were pragmatic as well as patriotic reasons why he enlisted. What do we know about his stateside military service? Glenn um, first went into the Army Specialist Corps for training, but all along, a branch of the Army, the Army Air Forces, which is now the U.S. Air Force, had their eye on him. They really wanted him because the Air Force was going to be doing several big network radio shows. Miller fit perfectly because they figured, hey, we'll make him director of bands for our training command, which is where people are being trained to fly or to do other duties as mechanics or whatever. And we're going to have him, you know, as our spokesman for the Air Force. So after he got out of the Army Specialist School at Fort Meade, Maryland, literally the day that the Fort Meade course ended, General H.H. Arnold, Hap Arnold, the commanding general of all people, the top guy in the Air Force, wrote a memo to the Army and said, uh, please transfer Captain Glenn Miller to Maxwell Field, Montgomery, Alabama. And that was it. He ended up in the Air Force. They made him director of bands of the AAF Training Command. 
he formed, he was literally in charge of modernizing and forming bands at all the Air Force bases, all around training bases, all around the country. So what happened was he literally had a line on all the guys from the big bands that were getting drafted. And he got all these guys that would have otherwise been going to the Army or Navy transferred into the Air Force for his network of bands. And among the network of bands would be three bands that were network radio broadcasting units in Hollywood, New York, and in Dallas, Texas, because in Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth was where the Air Force Training Command was, Fort Worth was where it was headquartered, so they had a band there. Any event, uh, Miller led the band himself in New York. It was stationed at New Haven, Connecticut, at Yale University, where there was an Army Air Force's training school. It was the closest AAF installation to Manhattan. So basically, they spent all their time not only at New Haven, but at, at NBC in New York, making doing a weekly radio show called I Sustain the Wings. They were doing V-Discs. They were doing overseas radio broadcasts for the Voice of America and for Armed Forces Radio. And um, that everything was great. Miller was a big recruiting asset. He was a big fundraising asset for war bonds. And, but then in May 1944, a gentleman in England at Supreme Headquarters, Allied Headquarters, named Dwight D. Eisenhower, sent a memo to Washington, to General Marshall and General Arnold, and said, we are forming a radio broadcasting network coincidental with our plans to invade Europe for the Allied forces. And we think that we want Captain Glenn Miller and the Army Air Forces Band to be our, to be, to staff that radio network for us. And so Washington was faced with a dilemma because Miller was very important and valuable in the role he had, but um, they couldn't say no to Ike. So the Miller band was transferred to England in June of 1944. Before he's transferred, though, is it true that as he's modernizing army bands, is he ruffling feathers of people who prefer hmm. maybe the the Sousa bands of, of previous oh, conflict? Yeah, definitely. I would direct you and anybody to like to Time Magazine in October of 1943, and there's a there's an article which, to today's reading, would be a little bit offensive because it gets into some racial stuff. But it basically says Sousa with a Floy Floy, and it says, "Is there an Afro Saxon in the woodpile?" And the bottom line, and that's the offensive part. But it basically said that yeah, Miller was definitely ruffling feathers of traditionalists who said, "What is this? We can't improve upon Sousa." Miller actually said something, which in the movie, The Glenn Miller Story, which had a lot of fiction, was true. An army colonel actually did say, you know, what are you doing? Why are you playing marches, um, marching music like St. Louis Blues March and Blues in the Night March? What are you doing with blues? We play Sousa. And he said, tell me, sir, um, are you flying the same airplanes that you flew in World War One?" And it was kind of a sarcastic <laughs> remark, right. but it, it, it was true. But here's the thing about it, it was interesting. Washington and AAF headquarters, and which is part of the army, was 100% supportive of Miller. It was the mid-level, you know, long-time army music officers at different bases that said, who is this captain that can cut through red tape and come to our base and tell us how we're going to play music? You know, we outrank him. He's just this guy named Glenn Miller, who's a swing guy. What's he doing here? In fact, really interesting thing about the Army Air Forces band compared to a civilian band. One other aspect to this, it was a 62 piece concert orchestra with jazz involved in it. So it had popular music, jazz and classical music. 
So a lot of musicians who had been strings strings players, like violinists and violas and cellos, who had worked for the NBC Symphony, the Cleveland Symphony, the Philadelphia Symphony, all these symphony orchestras got transferred to Miller. And they said, why are we being transferred to Glenn Miller? We play classic music. And when they got into rehearsals with him, they understood why, because he wanted to add strings to the, the whole thing. He, he definitely made a big impact in the United States at the time. I think what comes across in your book is just how energetic he is and how there is really no red tape that he encounters that he can't seem to find his way around or cut through when it comes to the bands and what he he's trying well, to do. General Barton Yount, who was the um, commanding officer of the Air Force's training command, who reported to General Arnold, literally I have the memo. He said to Miller, use my name, sign my name, anything you want, you get. Not a bad offer. Oh, no. <laughs> it was, they knew what they had. And, you know, another thing that was interesting was when he made V-discs, the Army V-disc, which was not the Air Force, the Army V-disc people said, OK, the V-disc is going to say Army Air Forces Orchestra. And he said, and Miller said, no, you are not. We are not going to record and you're not going to make that V-disc unless it says Army Air Forces Orchestra directed by Captain Glenn Miller. And it wasn't because he was an egomaniac. It was because he said, it's because I am Glenn Miller, which is why you have me here. And therefore, my name should be on this stuff so that people recognize, because Army Air Forces Orchestra could be anybody. But Army Air Forces Orchestra, directed by Captain Glenn Miller, told you who it was and what the music would sound like. Now, you mentioned that he goes overseas in 1944. What are his major duties in England? First one was radio broadcasting. Like I said, they were staffing the Allied, Allied Expeditionary Forces program of the BBC, which was the Shafe radio network, which was 50% American programming and 50% British and Canadian programming. And a lot of the American Armed Forces Radio Service and the BBC, neither of them wanted it because they wanted their own independent operations, which they continued to have. The American Forces Network and the BBC still had their own stuff. But Eisenhower felt that if you were going to have a combined operation and allied forces fighting together, that he wanted camaraderie between the, the British Commonwealth and the American forces. So Miller's band, first and foremost, did that network. And it was not inconsiderable. They had the full orchestra, a jazz band led by Sergeant Ray McKinley, who was a drummer, who was a very famous band leader in his own right, who worked for Glenn in the military. They had a um, jazz program led by Sergeant Mel Powell, a famous jazz pianist, a strings program led by George Ochner, a famous violinist. The point is, they had six different programs going at the same time every single week. So every day, every single day, if you listen to this radio network in England, or on the continent, you heard some part of that band all the time on that, doing doing programs that they either did live or recorded. They did a lot of stuff with British artists, like on their main program, weekly program, which was on Thursday nights. You would have British guest stars on the programs with them, like Vera Lynn, who just passed away last year. Dame Vera Lynn was sang with them, people like that, different British stars. And so, and they did all the programs. The BBC technically engineered them. The BBC produced the programs with the U.S. Um, Armed Forces Radio Service for AEFP. So that was their number one job. Their second job, which is not really second, but their other job was to go around to air bases. Remember, they were they were in the Air Force. They were an Air Force unit. And the Air Force loaned them to Shafe for broadcasting if the Air Force got what they wanted, which was the band went to all the Air Force bases in England. People may forget that the United States had 85 
I repeat, 85 Air Force bases in England in World War II. Think about that. Like a million Americans sitting there flying airplanes or servicing airplanes. So the band went around to all the air bases, the bomber bases, B-17s, B-24s, the fighter bases, P-51s, and appeared before anywhere from two to 10,000 people every concert. So they did live concerts at air bases and hangars and at outside. They went to RAF bases. They went to army bases. Not so much army, but mostly air bases all over England. Then they had a third responsibility. The shape also had a psychological warfare division. And in addition to their troop broadcasting, which was the AEFP, they also had a service called ABSI, American Broadcasting Station in Europe, which was the voice of American European Division. So they did a program called Music for the Wehrmacht. They appeared on an hour program every week aimed at the German Armed Forces, where they had German-speaking announcers and a woman, a woman who was actually Lieutenant Gloria Wagner who was Richard Wagner's granddaughter, actually, which is very interesting. But they called her Ilsa because they didn't want to say who she really was because a lot of her family still lived in Germany. So Ilsa gave Glenn Miller German lessons on, 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 on ABSI. So the German armed forces, the Wehrmacht, was getting Glenn Miller trying to speak German, which he couldn't, with Ilsa and the band playing you know, all about, you know, so if you're German and you're being, a, you know, this you're fighting for like, I guess the dark side, you'd call it in Star Wars parlance. You're on the dark side. The good guys start playing Glenn Miller music and you're sitting there going, wait a minute, why am I fighting these guys? You know, so in other words, they didn't have to do a lot of propaganda. In fact, the whole idea was just do our music and do our programming the way we would normally do it for our guys and for our audiences, but for the Germans. And don't mix it up because the Germans are smart. We can't, you know, lie to them. We, we can't deceive them. Let's just do it normally like we would program to anybody. So those are the three things they did. The Allied troops, the air bases, and the Germans. Oh, and by the way, one other thing I'd mentioned, people may not realize this. Glenn Miller reported to somebody at AEFP at Shafe, a lieutenant colonel, who was his direct boss named David Niven. The David Niven was Glenn right. Miller's protege. That's who Glenn Miller was worked with in England, which is kind of interesting. So he was very, very busy, obviously, in the, the time Absolutely. That he was there. December 15, 1944, he boards a flight from Bedford, England, bound for Paris, and he's never mm -hmm. seen again. Why was right. he on that particular flight? In November, Glenn had made an agreement or proposed a plan with Niven to move the band from England to Paris. Now, the reason for this was that Shea felt that they wanted to make the band more available for concerts for both military hospitals in and around the Paris area because all the Allied casualties were being treated in, Paris, in and near Paris and all the troops on the front lines would be getting leave in Paris. I mean, up till now, the band had primarily been available to air bases, not army ground bases. So that's one reason why they wanted to do it. And so but Paris had been recently liberated. The conditions in Paris weren't up to snuff. The Germans had sabotaged some of the broadcasting facilities, and BBC was against the move unless they could develop and reliable broadcasting facilities and transmission capability from Paris so their normal programs could still go on the air and still be there every day. So Miller and Niven and all the other people involved were working hard on this between November and December. And, and the plan was to move the band the week before Christmas so that it would be there for Christmas and then into January and the new year in Paris. 
So it wasn't like they were going, people say, well, they were going to do a concert in Paris. They were actually going to do dozens and dozens of concerts in Paris because it was going to be a full-time move. The band had to pre-record 80 hours of programming for the BBC engineering staff to satisfy them that they'd have a backlog of shows. If in the event they couldn't broadcast in Paris until stuff was ready, they needed a backlog of shows from England. So the men agreed. They pre-recorded all these shows in addition to their normal shows, which is a lot of work. They got it done by December 12th, and the band was supposed to fly on December 16th. Niven calls Miller up on December 10th and says, we got a problem. Our facilities in Paris aren't properly developed. We're not ready yet for the band to move. I need you to come over here ahead of the band and firm up um, our plans and help me get this fixed. So Miller agrees and he um, schedules a flight. They had, I don't know if people know this at the time, there was a regularly scheduled, almost like an airline. The Air Force had 12 passenger flights a day between London and Paris from an airport called Bovington to Paris Orly, which was the Paris airport at the time. And these are regular flights and all the VIPs took them. The flights were grounded because of bad weather in France, not so much in England, but in France. So what happened was Glenn went out, fin- they finished all their work in England, and he went out to take this flight and he couldn't get on it on the, on the 13th. He tried to get on on the 14th, couldn't get on. The band had been billeted. That is, they, they were housed and ate in Bedford outside of London. So they'd be protected from V1 and V2 attacks. And an officer who Glenn knew in Bedford, a man named Lieutenant Colonel Norman Bazell, said, look, I have, I have duties in France. I'm back and forth between Paris. I have my own plane and I have my own pilot. You can hitch a ride with me. I'm leaving on Friday. I'm going to go regardless of the weather. I think the weather will be fine. If it's bad, we can't go, but I think it'll be okay. Why don't you hitch a ride? Why don't you just come with me? Because you, And Miller was frustrated because he couldn't get on the regular scheduled flights. So he accepted the offer from Bazell. And off and on Friday, December 15th, he got on this single engine C64 Norseman at Twinwood Field in Bedford, outside of Bedford, Twinwood Field, an RAF station. And off they went. And um, they were never seen again. Do we know what happened with the flight? The Air Force figured it out very quickly. First of all, they knew it went down in the channel by process of elimination. Um, it was a complicated situation because the plane had been denied instrument clearance from England to France, meaning the pilot had to fly visual flight rules. He was allowed to do that. Visual meaning he had to go under the weather and maintain contact with the ground or the water. So if the ceiling was a thousand feet or 2000 feet, he had to be below it, which is pretty low. And other planes had done that that day. Some other planes had gone ahead for other purposes that day at that altitude. If he had flown instrument, he would have been above the weather and everything would have been perfectly all right. He was normal. That's normally what he would do. The problem was, and the reason they denied clearance was landing in Paris, that the Paris weather was so bad, they didn't think it was possible to land there. Anyway, um, Colonel Bazell insisted that the pilot go ahead. Miller didn't was unaware, I think, of how dangerous it might be to attempt this flight. So the military did not have a flight plan. The base where the pilot came from, which was an Abbott's Ripton, knew that the plane was missing because it hadn't reported back in from France when it got supposedly got there. The plane was supposed the pilot was supposed to report in when he got to France and say, we're here, we're fine, it's all good. And another base in France would tell the base in England, plane, you know, 4470285 arrived at 2 p.m., you know, and then they would log it in. 
That never came. So the day after this flight, nobody knew what had happened. Day after the flight, the, the base in England that never gets a report from France. The base in England wasn't concerned because the weather had been bad. The pilot might have de- detoured, gone somewhere else, landed because the bad weather stayed in England. So they wrote up a missing aircraft report, air crew report, and filed it. Just set it aside. So we'll wait a couple of days and see what happens. Um, meanwhile, that day, and this is very important, it was December 16th, Saturday. That was the morning the Germans attacked the Ardennes and started what we now know as the Battle of the Bulge. So all the Allied communications, everything was in confusion. And it wasn't like a missing one missing airplane transport, one missing transport utility plane was of no concern to anyone because they were busy worrying about all this other stuff. So we get to Monday, December 18th. The weather has cleared. It's perfectly clear. It's sunny. The band is in three C-47 transports because it takes that many planes to fly all their instruments, equipment, luggage, them, everything. And the three C-47s with Miller's band, all 62 men, land in Paris, perfectly safe. But Miller isn't there to meet them, which is kind of odd because he's a type A personality. He's always on top of stuff. He's there to do anything that needs to be done. So they're concerned, like, where is he? And they check with Shafe and they say, is he there? Where is he? And Shafe says, we didn't expect him. The weather was bad. All of our formal flights were grounded. We thought he was with you. So after everybody ran the traps and figured out, hey, he's missing. So then when 8th Air Force, who was responsible for it, and Shafe both realized that Glenn Miller was not there, they they did everything they could. They checked all the uh, Allied anti-aircraft to see if the plane had accidentally been shot down. They checked all airfields on both sides of the channel to see if it had diverted somewhere. They put up, they, they did a search. They put up search planes to see if they could find this plane. And they actually checked to see if it possibly had strayed over German territory and been shot down or forced down over enemy territory. Um, they couldn't find them. So by process of deduction, they figured they're in the water. Now, here's the problem. It's winter. It's December. If they did go down in the water due to mechanical failure or pilot error and bad weather, um, they had 20 minutes survival time in the water if they, in fact, survived the ditching or some crash. So by the time you got to Monday, any chance of any survivors, if they were down in the water, was gone. When is his disappearance announced to the world and when is he ultimately declared dead? It was announced on Christmas Eve, December 24th, and the reason for the nine-day delay, well, from the flight, but the the six-day delay from when they figured out he was missing, was to investigate and search, and they didn't want to say anything until they knew what had really happened. So that was the time involved in trying to figure out what had gone wrong and where the plane was. And all of the military people, everything they, they, they investigated, they interviewed the air traffic controllers, the the control tower people in Twinwood. And it didn't take long for them to determine that in all likelihood, the plane had 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 mechanical trouble or the pilot had simply been disoriented. I use the example of JFK Jr. over Martha's Vineyard in 1999 for being disoriented in, in clouds. And mechanical failure, um, the, this plane had been serviced three days before the flight. There were issues with the C-64 planes with their carburetors and their heaters were not working properly, which meant that the engine could ice up, could get could freeze over in bad weather. There were icing conditions that day. There were alerts put out to pilots that between 1,000 and 4,000 feet, there were severe icing conditions, which would cause a plane to crash. So they kind of 
felt that it was obvious the plane had gone down in the water and it was nowhere else to be found. But it took him some time to determine that. Miller was declared dead. So it was announced to the world on, on Christmas Eve by Schaefer. They, they just said he was missing on a flight from England to France and no word of him had been found. But they made it, they wanted to, to say in the announcement that nobody else other than him from his band was on the plane. So nobody would be worried about everybody else. And um, he was officially declared dead one year later, December 15th, 1945, because by military regulations, there was a one year period to look to search for a missing person to be declared dead. It was not unusual for an airplane to disappear in World War II over water. I mean, people, because Glenn Miller was an international celebrity, I think it was, it became an exaggerated thing like, how could this happen? Where are they? They can't find the bodies. They can't find the plane. Something nefarious must have really happened, blah, 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 blah. But think about how many hundreds of planes were blown up over Germany or vanished on missions and how many bomber crew were declared missing? If you look at the list of missing, like the wall of the American Military Cemetery in Cambridge at Mattingly has all the MIAs as well as the actual cemetery. And there's as many MIAs there because nobody ever found, you know, the air crew that went missing. Or in the Pacific where planes were just out over the water and they might have run out of gas or they, they navigation was bad, they, they disappeared. A lot of airplanes disappeared in World War II. This was just that this happened to have one more. Miller was obviously high profile. The aircraft remains missing today and his remains yep. have never been located. So obviously there's still a lot of interest in his disappearance. And this has led right. to a lot of theories about what happened. How does your research challenge some of those rumors and other theories about his disappearance? Well, I tried to be logical and approach it from a process of, uh, of elimination. Compare you, you basically on this do a mythology, methodology, excuse me, where you take all the known information that you can locate. And in my case, you know, it was very fortunate to be able to locate a ton of information in both the British and the American uh, military archives that have been declassified, that were classified up until the 1990s or 2000s that nobody had ever gone through in detail or compared to each other. And it didn't take long by process of deduction to determine what had really happened and the gravity and the, and the bulk of evidence that, that was, would, was involved and how many errors. I call it a perfect storm. A lot of things that had to happen caused this to happen, like the fact the authorities allowed the plane to fly at all, the fact Bazell had the right to you know, authorize his own flight even though he wasn't a pilot, things like that. And so it quickly became obvious that the report, the Air Force did an investigation and had an inquiry on January 20th, 1945 at Bedford. They convened a court at Bedford that sifted through everything and made determinations, but they sealed that report. They sealed it and nobody ever saw it. And it basically, they basically fired three people the commanding officers of the units involved who allowed this flight to happen were all reassigned back to the United States. They were sent home. So in effect, they were fired. And a lot of changes were made to how flights could be authorized, what the clearances were, um, what the conditions had to be, pi what pilots had to do to just go. And, you know, 
In other words, they changed a lot of the rules. A lot of things happened as a result of this investigation, but it was put away. So I think what happened was in the 1950s, 60s, 70s timeframe, a lot of rumors and and sensational stories came up because the government just said the plane went missing. It vanished over the English Channel. And that was that. They didn't say, oh, the 8th Air Force was at fault or that these officers were at fault, or this is what we found in our investigation. They never did it. And by the way, they didn't want to say, gee, Glenn Miller, you know, because when you look, when you actually look at the report, and I have it in the book, it said, it faults Miller, it says he was not authorized to be on this plane. He, he, he disobeyed his orders. His orders were to fly by authorized transportation, not by casual, what they call casual transportation, which was to accept a ride from somebody. So in effect, if they had issued and said, here's what really happened, they would be saying Glenn Miller had made a mistake and, 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 and in effect, you know, put his own life at risk. And I don't think anybody, remember in World War II and afterwards, parents and spouses and family didn't get telegrams from the military saying, your son or husband or brother had messed up and, and made a mistake and, and went off and his plane went down because he, you know, flew, flew into a mountain or something. You know, they didn't do that. They weren't cruel. And, but, you know, so what happened was in the 50s and 60s, you had all these people saying, oh, something else must have happened. He didn't really get on the plane. He, Bazell was this black market guy, this, this, this gangster, and he was in nefarious activities and Glenn got caught up in it and Glenn got murdered or something like that. All these kinds of crazy things or that Glenn really was sick and had cancer and they hit him away and he died of cancer. So I had to go through all, it was easy to eliminate a lot of all of those kinds of things from the equation because all of that is easily disproven and nobody could ever prove any of it anyway because it wasn't true. But in the 1980s, a very credible alternative came up, which was that the plane had actually been hit by a jettisoned bomb from the RAF that a mission that day that had flown, because the bombers could fly over the weather by radar, and they were um they their mission had been canceled and they had to jettison or drop their bombs in the English Channel before they got back, went back to their bases because they couldn't land with the bombs on the planes. And um the, the Miller's plane had been hit by one of those bombs. And for like four decades, three or four decades, people came to really believe that. And when I went through all the British and American records, um, one whole chapter of the books devoted to it, we, we, we determined, I and all the people that helped me in the RAF and the, and the U.S. Air Force, determined that that didn't happen because the RAF bombers were not flying over that area at the time Miller's plane was passing by. We could prove that that wasn't the cause, which was great because the RAF, I have a letter from the Minister of Defense, the, the Minister of Defense of the United Kingdom, and the letter says, thank you for clearing us of responsibility in this mm -hmm. matter. I, I will I will always treasure that. That was very nice. <laughs> Thank you for clearing us. <laughs> so yeah, it was because of lack of information and the fact it was missing. Although I will tell you, if we ever find the wreckage of the plane, which obviously by now will just be a, a pile of, of rusted junk on the bottom of the English Channel, you won't find any human remains because they're long gone. You won't find it. People say to me, well, will we find Glenn Miller's trombones? And I'm like, well, he didn't have his trombone with him because all he had was his overnight bag and briefcase 
his trombones or with the band's equipment, you know, we, and we have <laughs> in, in the archive. So no, that's, but if we do find the wreckage, I, we, I don't think we'll ever determine what the actual cause of the crash was, whether it was the carburetor, whether it was wing ice, whether it was a hydraulic fluid leak or whether the pilot just flew it into the water because he became disoriented. But um, what you will determine is where it is. In other words, you'll, and, and people say, is that possible or impossible? It's theoretically possible to find it because what will be left is the engine. And the engine is a very unique engine that was only on that plane and that time frame in, in, in Europe. So if you find a, a wreckage, a debris under the channel with that exact engine, you have found that plane. So it's a needle in a haystack because there are thousands of pieces of, of debris under the channel. But as Robert Ballard told us once, it's only 150 to 200 feet down. It's not like going after the Titanic or the Bismarck. It's like right. really right there in shallow water. So, but it's just that there's so much stuff. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. But they actually think that technically you could. But the only other problem with searching for it is it's a major shipping lane. So you've got all these tankers and freighters going by. So if you've got a salvage ship, you've got to dodge all this shipping traffic. So you get run over trying to find this debris. So nobody's ever probably going to ever go out in the middle of the channel and find it. I doubt it, but you know, it might happen. Scholars like to link Miller's music to a sense of freedom and to the idea of a very unique American culture. Do you agree with this? And how important do you think American music, like what Glenn Miller was creating, was during World War II? I absolutely believe that it has a major cultural significance. You know, the our Glenn Miller archives here at the University of Colorado is part of the American Music Research Center, where we preserve and promote American culture and American music of all types and all cultures, all races, everything. And if you think about the pre-World War II era and then on into World War II, there were, I think there were two Miller eras. One was his civilian band and all of the stuff that was going on prior to World War II and then the military band during World War II, people would say, and the World War II Museum in New Orleans has said this, that Glenn Miller's music was the soundtrack of the greatest generation. And I think that's what's happened is over time, probably the mystique and mystery of his disappearance plays into it. The fact that he did volunteer, the fact that he was in uniform, became captain and then major Glenn Miller plays into it. So there's a sense of patriotism, but the big band era, the popular music era of the 20th century, remember, it's not just jazz, but popular music, ballads, all the other genres involved. It is totally, I mean, we tend to romanticize it now, but prior to World War II, it was a more innocent era. It was a more, I don't know, it it, it does embody, I think his music, the ballads, the, the clarinet lead that he popularized with the style that he had in 1939-40 is definitely a part, a permanent part of American culture. For better or worse, um, some jazz experts would argue with me about this, but Glenn Miller is remembered as the number one band leader of the era. So he does epitomize it. For better or worse, it's just what it is. And the fact that he was in the military takes it to a whole nother level because really nobody uh, gave their life the way he did for it. And so, yeah, he does. It, it's totally intertwined. It's a cultural thing that I think is permanent and is, and is a nice, it's a good thing. It's a very positive thing. Well, thank you very much for joining today. 
thank you for asking me and it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.